example, you said just now that, um, and I think it's a striking fact about storytelling, you said that it's natural and that mm. we all do it and it's part of everyday life. And certainly we all like being told stories. Whereas I suppose by contrast, philosophy is, as it were, counter-natural. I mean, uh, philosophy involves essentially the critical analysis of one's beliefs and the presuppositions of one's beliefs. And it's very striking that people actually don't like having that done to them. None of us do. We don't like being analysed mm. and we don't like the the assumptions on which our beliefs rest being questioned because it makes us feel insecure and uncomfortable and we all have a strong resistance to doing it. Yes, I think it is a very counter-natural, a very unnatural activity. And when one starts doing philosophy, I mean, well, I notice this, of course, in in teaching philosophy, that people are very reluctant to play this game or cannot see how it's done at all to begin with because it involves uh, a very odd sort of standpoint. It's it's notoriously difficult to define philosophy, of course. If somebody yes. doesn't know what, what this activity is, it's very difficult to say <laughs> what it is. Yeah. Um, it's to do with uh, with conceptual structures, to do with very deep... Um, structures of belief and knowledge to do with meaning, significance, is partly, of course, to do with words in the sense that it's about how language relates to the world and and that sort of thing. Um, and it's not science and it's not art and it's uh, it's very important that it's not science, I think, don't you think? I mean, that, that uh, uh, as soon as you start doing science, you're falling right out of philosophy. It, it's a kind of point of view which... Uh, Although the style may be scientific, the actual, what you're doing is, is certainly not science. It's a kind of a reflection on concepts. Yes. It, it's, it, 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 well, Bertrand Russell once said that it, it's the questions that we don't know how to answer. And I think Isaiah yes. Berlin and other yes. well-known contemporary philosophers also take this yes. view. And it means looking at things which one takes for granted yes. and suddenly seeing that they're very, very odd yes. indeed. yes. But the, the one, one thing that philosophy does have in common with science, I think, is that it, it's based on an attempt to understand the world and to understand our environment and to understand mm-hmm. our situation in a way that doesn't consist just of expressing personal attitudes and personal views. There is an attempt to, as it were, submit oneself, and this was implicit in something you said just now, I think, to submit oneself to criteria outside oneself. In other words, you're trying to say something that is impersonally true. Yes, yes. And you said just now, I think when you were talking about the way you yourself write, you said that, uh, and it's absolutely true, that your, your novel writing has a very distinctive literary personality, whereas I think you said you wouldn't mind if your philosophical writing was thought not to have any personality. Now, it strikes me that, that almost the most important thing about an imaginative or creative writer is this possession of a literary personality. If he hasn't got a distinctive personality in that sense, we're not interested in reading it. Whereas with philosophers, it, it just isn't the case. I mean, you could read all the works of Kant with great care and interest, and at the end of it have no idea what Kant was like as a human being. Yes, of course, literature is various in this respect, isn't it? That uh, some people have a distinctive style, other people don't. Um, I suppose it is self-expression in a way by definition. I mean, that uh, unless you wanted to uh, express yourself, uh, you'd, uh, I mean, if you didn't have this motive, you'd lack a very important motive to towards this form of art. Um, whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and uh, 
you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Hi, I'm Dr. Devin Sanchez-Curry, and you're listening to Dialogues, Meditations, and Analyses, a companion podcast for the Problems of Philosophy course I teach at West Virginia University. You just heard the philosopher and novelist Iris Murdoch discussing her take on the essence of philosophy and how it contrasts with literature, with BBC radio presenter Brian McGee. For Murdoch, the contrast with literature revolves around the notion that philosophy is intrinsically argumentative. On today's episode, we'll discuss how the argumentative essence of philosophy is reflected in the art of philosophical conversation. There are a bunch of different skills involved in pulling off the art of philosophical conversation. In addition to analytical skills, There's creativity, rhetoric, and interpersonal skills, including, especially, the capacity to be charitable, even while you're being critical. We'll be practicing all of these skills pretty much constantly over the course of this semester, through class discussions and conversation assignments. Now, you may be thinking, oh ho ho, believe me, I've already mastered the art of philosophical conversation. But in this course you'll learn how to engage in philosophical conversation without the aid of marijuana. And more importantly, you'll learn how to engage in philosophical conversation in a manner that can be interesting to people who aren't themselves high out of their minds. As Murdoch might have pointed out, one of the main things that distinguishes Pothead's brand of philosophical conversation from professional philosophers' brand of philosophical conversation is that the latter tends to center on arguments, That is, sets of premises that are supposed to together lend support for a conclusion. Your primary required reading for this week, Anthony Weston's A Rulebook for Arguments, lays out the basic principles of logical argumentation as it's employed by philosophers. I'll discuss those principles in some detail during our class session later this week. Actually, that leads us to the first podcast segment that I'll introduce over the course of this episode. Our first recurring segment is titled, The Next Time We're Face to Face. Oh, the next time we're face to face. During this week's class sessions, I'll introduce you to the basic logical concepts of validity, soundness, necessity, and sufficiency. I'll also walk you through some basic forms of logical argument, as well as some common fallacies, and field your questions. In the meantime... In this podcast episode, instead of focusing on those technical details, which will be better introduced with visual aids, we'll focus on the other reading for this week, a selection from the early 20th century English philosopher Susan Stebbing's book, Thinking to Some Purpose. So, without further ado, let's launch into our second recurring segment, Notes on the Reading. Here's some notes on the reading, yep. I said notes on the reading. Stebbing intended her book to be read by a general audience, not just other academic philosophers. In the book, Stebbing aims to introduce the reader to the art of questioning what good reasons there are for believing the things that people, including you yourself, the reader, already believe. This persistent questioning attitude, as Stebbing calls it, is one of the things that distinguishes philosophical conversation 
of both the pothead variety and the professional variety from non-philosophical conversation. Actually, the stoners among us really get something right in this regard. As Stebbing argues, a questioning attitude is an enormously important tool, perhaps the most important tool, for learning how to live your life well, not to mention for serving on a single-issue legislature in our future litocracy. With that said, however, a questioning attitude is only really useful when supplemented with two things. First, a keen understanding of logical argumentation, and second, an equally keen understanding of the purposes to which you're putting your thinking. If they neglect logic, then the stoner's questioning attitude all too quickly leads them to crackpot conspiracy theorizing, rather than genuinely illuminating philosophizing. And if they neglect purpose, then they neglect the power that philosophy has to make real change in our lives and in our world. As Stebbing puts it, to think effectively is to think to some purpose. For, quote, to pursue an aim without considering what its realization would involve is stupid. The result may be fortunate, but it cannot be wise, end quote. One of the main purposes that Stebbing recommends putting our thinking to is questioning our own dogmas and preconceptions. As Stebbing writes, quote, It is a good habit to ask with regard to our cherished beliefs. Now how did I come to think that? An honest answer would sometimes be both surprising and enlightening. It could not fail to be useful. End quote. Stebbing insists that we're all prejudiced about something or other. It's just harder to see our own prejudices than those of other people. I recommend taking this point of stebbing seriously and applying it to your own life. What do you, the listener, take for granted that might be worth scrutinizing? How would you go about scrutinizing it? According to stebbing, to do philosophy is simply to ask and then attempt to answer and act on precisely those questions about what we, the philosophers, would otherwise take for granted. To delve further into Stebbing's ideas, a couple of guests will be joining me on today's episode. Unlike my usual guests, neither of them is a philosophy professor. Instead, I've invited on my brother, Galen, who's a musician, indeed he happens to be the musician responsible for our drops in theme music, as well as my wife, Amelia, who's a nurse. Galen and Amelia's conversation will serve a dual purpose. They'll thoughtfully discuss Stebbing's argument but they'll also model the philosophical conversation assignment that you'll be required to complete this semester. And they'll model it in a more realistically student-y, non-professional manner than Dr. Justin Bernstein did last week. For these conversation assignments, you'll be required to record a 5-15 to 15 minute conversation with a friend or family member. In that conversation, you'll explain a philosophical problem, argument, or doctrine of your choice to your friend or family member, and then discuss it with them. You'll be graded on how accurately and clearly you explain the problem, argument, or doctrine, as well as the thoughtfulness of your discussion. Your friend or family member can relax. They won't be graded. In today's model conversation, Galen will play the role of you, the student, and Amelia will play the role of Galen's interlocutor. So without further ado, here's Galen first singing the main riff from our theme song, and then Galen explaining what he got out of reading Stemming.
Hey, Amelia. Hey, Galen. I'd like to talk to you about some reading I did in my uh, Problems of Philosophy class. Uh, we read Thinking to Some Purpose by Susan Stebbing. L. Susan Stebbing. And uh, <laughs> I don't know what the L stands for. And she wants us to accept the... Um, she basically wants us to accept the basic premise that uh, we think and discuss things so we can then take a better so then we can then take better and more informed actions based on that thinking what do you what do you mean so everyone i mean uh the actions that you take mm -hmm. are based on the the things that you think and the way that you think about things right okay like uh your your point of view on something is going to inform the way you act on that thing right that makes okay. sense right that makes sense um, and everyone comes from some kind of background that, um, informs your beliefs and prejudices. Um, if we're able to look at these prejudices and consider a, where they came from and B, whether or not they are justifiable, uh, then we can think about the problems and issues more effectively and therefore take more effective actions. Um, right. Does she mean like, what does she mean by prejudice? Does she mean prejudice in the way that like I'm, I think about it now, or does she mean something else? Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I guess the way you're thinking about it now, probably. I mean, it could be something as, you know, kind of uh, prescient now as, you know, prejudice, like prejudices, like racial prejudices. Mm -hmm. Like that, is that kind of how you're thinking about it now, yeah, basically? Sure, yeah. But it can also just be prejudices on something like, I think raspberry flavors are better than blackberry flavors. Like that's just a, that could be a prejudice you have. Um, and, I mean, that, that's kind of a silly one, I guess, because a preference is different than a prejudice, but, but it doesn't need to be anything as grand as race. I see. Yeah. I mean, so maybe just like, um, I mean, so does she mean something different between like prejudice and bias? Or are they the same? Uh, I don't know. She just doesn't really get into the difference between those two. I guess they're the same. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if you can think about issues more effectively then you can take more effective actions, and your actions determine, and then your actions kind of determine you, who you are as a person. So thinking, thinking with some purpose will make you better and make the world better. Um, does that does that kind of make sense? It makes sense. It's pretty grand. Yeah, it's it's grand, but it's also kind of basic too. Just that the things that the things that you think will inform the way that you act, and the way that you act will inform the way that the world is. I mean, yeah, that seems, yeah. That seems true. So, all right, so on to a problem of philosophy as presented by Stebbing. <laughs> Sorry for the cats meowing. And the dogs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so she, uh, Stebbing introduces this character called Colonel Blimp, and he's kind of a patriotic British blowhard. Um, he's basically a perfect example of the prejudiced mind. Because um, he holds beliefs about the world and is happy expressing them very emotionally, but he won't even consider other viewpoints. Um, and here's, a, here's, here's just a good quote from him. Uh, we must build a bigger navy than the enemy will build when he hears we're building a bigger navy than he's building. <laughs> um, and it, it's, it's possible that some of Colonel Blimp's points of view are valid and true. Um, and the problem here isn't that he's always wrong or he's always right, or uh, it's that he's not coming to the conclusions in a thoughtful or reasonable way. Um, he's just he, he's he's on his from his previous thoughts and points of view. He's expressing those without any consideration for what he's saying. Um, and everyone has a little bit of Colonel Blimp in them, you know, because you have these pre-held. 
beliefs and you base a lot of your actions on them um, without much self-reflection. Uh, you know, back to the two things that I mentioned before, uh, like where, where do those things come from and are the reasons for believing those things justifiable? And this just leads to closed minds and, and no thought for productive conversation or progress. Um, like when our emotions are raised about something, have we stopped to weigh the evidence against our strongly held beliefs? Um, or are we just being, you know, full of emotion, but also backing it up with evidence? Uh, so Stebbing gives us uh, a few tips for avoiding just blindly following prejudices and avoiding being a colonel blimp. Um, does this make sense a, a little bit so far? Yeah, it makes sense. I, I was just going back to like thinking about the um, like the thing about thinking about where your prejudices come from. Yeah. I'm wondering if she is both suggesting that, um, like, it's good to, like, okay, hello, <laughs> think about why we, um, like, where our prejudices come from, yeah. but also, like, both in terms of, like, our individual prejudice, like, why do we hold this individual prejudice, but if she's suggesting that we have certain prejudices because of um, the way we were raised or the culture that we're part in part of, whether that's talking about mainstream culture or like more tiny community cultures, cultures yeah. right within our family or whatever. Um, I'm wondering if she's suggesting both um, an opportunity for us to think back to that, to change our own prejudice, but then also to think about our, the communities that those prejudices come from and how they're functioning um, in terms of like, what is that prejudice doing in our community? Right. Uh, like, how is it functioning? Why is, like, so I guess what I mean is, is she trying to give us an opportunity to think about both our individual prejudices and then, like, um, how that prejudice functions within these communities? Do, do you know what I'm trying to say? Like, I the think. So, I'm trying to make? Yeah, so that, that, I mean, I think that definitely is a distinction, and I think that that's useful in thinking about it yourself. But uh, I think she she's mostly, she's talking about kind of prejudice that would definitely encapsulate both of those. Those are both like different types of like your more individualized community prejudices versus mm-hmm. societal prejudices. Mm-hmm. Those are both valid and they're both things that can color the way that you think about something. Mm-hmm. So there, I think she would say that you have to consider both equally and mm-hmm. in the same ways, like where are they coming from? What is this something that you've just been told your whole life without questioning? Mm-hmm. Or is this something that you've, considered and there's evidence to support it and therefore you support you you support it mm-hmm. and i think that 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 qualifies for either 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 kind of prejudice mm-hmm. um but she said that and uh stemming has a few tips for just avoiding the blindly blind following of your prejudices yeah. either kind that you're talking about and avoiding being a colonel bullet basically and the first one is uh considering the sentiments of someone who disagrees with you but that you deem a reasonable person. Mm-hmm. So someone else who who you see think is reasonable and who seems to consider all sides of things but has a differing opinion to you. Sure. Because then, you know, then you're going to be provided with a uh the opposite opinion in a reasonable way that isn't just all emotion. Um and the second one is since we have an emotional bias, uh you tend to look for evidence that backs you up while conveniently ignoring evidence that disputes you. I mean, you can always find some reasons to support something, even if it's not the right thing. Yeah. Um, 
So you have to make, so the crux of the second point is you have to make a deliberate search for contrary evidence. So, you know, it, there's going to be evidence against you out against your side of almost anything out there. And you have to decide whether that's valid, but you have to look for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the third is, uh, you can't let prejudice lead you to overstatement. Like, uh, it's so easy to make grand sweeping claims about things when usually, usually they're way more nuanced. And, um, so, so a lot of, a lot of prejudice and world and world prejudices and worldviews are kind of, uh, they're grand statements about things that all something are something, you know, and yeah. that's just not, it's just, you can think that, but when you look into it, that's rarely true. And if it is true, you should be able to say that and have that mean that. Um, an example that she gives is, uh, believing nothing good of the enemy, you know, during like a, during a war, there'll be propaganda where they're just discounting whatever the enemy does or thinks. And obviously it's way more nuanced than that. Just because they're the enemy doesn't mean every single thing they're doing is wrong. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, do you feel like she's, what do you think the like ultimate like point of her article is like do you think like is this like a how-to guide is this like it a, kind of feels a little bit like a how-to guide it sounds like one yeah it, i mean it, it's kind of a way to think about the way we should argue and talk and uh and convince people of things because um I, it, it, this was written i think in the 30s but it seems like so prescient now because there's so many people just yelling at each there's, other there's a lot of yelling yeah and <laughs> yelling from basically pa- every second. exactly <laughs> and past each other not even yeah hearing what the other person's saying and uh knowing how to consider consider your own arguments as possibly being from a faulty faulty premise or faulty foundation is the first step in kind of uh you know creating arguments that do work in favor of the things that you believe. Do you think that there's something that she talks about that, like, do you think everything that she's writing in this article Mm -hmm. covers the way to handle this sort of prejudice? Do you think that like, maybe some, like, do you think she's right about everything that she's saying here? I think so. Yeah. I think it's hard to disagree with her about a lot of this stuff because she's not, there's no like side she takes on anything on any particular issue or anything. It's more, it's just basically think about why you think the things that you think. Yeah. Figure and out what you think. And then where does that idea come from? Why are you thinking this? Exactly. Things? Is it like the right thing to think and behave on? Exactly. And some of the things that you have prejudices about and you just know to be true, uh, but have no evidence for might be true still, mm-hmm. but you need the evidence. You need to have the evidence and you need to have uh, a valid reason for believing that for that to be a good argument or a good side of something. Um, and uh, yeah, and that's important. Yeah. I mean, to have reason and and productive discussions and arguments, you have to constantly be aware of your prejudices and sincerely question your own beliefs. Um, and it's not to say you should be completely emotionless, like an emotionless robot of rationality. Is that what she says? She doesn't. I just came up with that one myself. Yeah. I love robots. Um, Emotion behind your beliefs is a good thing as long as it doesn't cloud your search, you know, for evidence supporting your beliefs and your ability to hear other points of view. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean... So that's the that's the crux of it there. Seems pretty re- Don't be an authoritative blowhard. Exactly. Don't be a Colonel Blimp. 
Thank you for talking with me about this, Amelia. Thanks, Galen. Thanks a bunch to Galen and Amelia for being my guinea pigs on today's episode. Amelia was, of course, brilliant, especially in adopting a questioning attitude right from the get-go. And Galen acquitted himself pretty well, too. He would get an A- for this conversation. You'll recall that Dr. Bernstein modeled an A-plus conversation in last week's episode. For your convenience, both of these model conversations are available as standalone bits of audio on our course eCampus page. So Galen would get an A-. In particular, Galen did an excellent job accurately explaining Stebbing's main thesis and giving a clear breakdown of her argument, that is, her reasons in support of that thesis. He was able to do that because he took some time, before recording the conversation with Amelia, to write notes for himself about how he wanted to present Stebbing's argument. Galen also wisely used the example of Colonel Blimp to illustrate Stebbing's line of thought in a clear and accessible manner. I highly recommend leaning on examples in just this way. Finally, he answered Amelia's questions thoughtfully, seriously considering Stebbing's point of view, and not just conflating it with his own. With that said, Galen could have been sharper on a couple of minor points. For one thing, Amelia asked a good question about Stebbing's usage of the term prejudices. In fact, a close reading reveals that Stebbing uses the term prejudice in its original meaning. It just means a prejudged, unexamined opinion. It doesn't necessarily have any negative connotations. So contrary to Galen's remark, on Stebbing's usage, unexamined preferences, like preferring raspberries to blackberries, actually can be prejudices just as much as biases like racism and sexism are prejudices. For another very minor nitpicky thing, Galen refers at one point to having a, quote, valid reason. But as Weston discusses in your other reading for this week, in philosophical contexts, the term valid only characterizes arguments. It doesn't characterize reasons. Reasons is another word for the premises of arguments. And thus reasons can be true or false, but they cannot, technically speaking, be valid or invalid. Moreover, while Galen did an admirable job, considering Stebbing's point of view. He could have been more critical in reflecting on what he himself thought about her argument. For example, he could have considered the extent to which people are capable of examining our own beliefs. Do we always have the ability to access our own beliefs in a manner that makes them available to be examined? Or, Galen might have considered whether there are drawbacks to the questioning attitude. Stebbing stresses that we should use philosophy to act better. But can't thinking too much, and especially skeptically questioning everything too much, sometimes get in the way of getting on with the business of living our lives well? There's the old saw about the first ancient Greek philosopher, Thales, getting so lost in thought that he fell in a well. Then again, there's the other old saw about Thales using his philosophical skills to make a huge amount of money on the ancient Greek equivalent of the stock market. So it could go either way. Anyway, we'll return to both of these critical questions raised by Stebbing's view later in the semester during our discussions of other philosophers, but you should feel free to weigh in on either of them in class discussions this week. Regardless, with that all said, Galen did a lot right. In completing your own conversation assignments, you should take a cue from him and focus primarily on getting the philosophical problem, argument, or doctrine that you're explaining right. Then, 
only once you've gotten to the point where you know you can clearly explain the issue to your interlocutor should you take a step back and reflect on what you really think about the matter. That's it for this week's episode. We'll spend the rest of the week practicing logic and further discussing Stebbing's analysis of the uses to which logical analysis should be put in order to equip ourselves with the tools to do philosophy all semester, nay all lifelong. One of the things the tools of logic can be particularly useful for is detecting bullshit. But the tools of logic can also be used for evil. As Stebbing explains in her chapter on propaganda, among the most insidious bullshitters in the world are logic-chopping bullshitters. That's precisely what we'll talk about next week on Episode 4 of Dialogues, Meditations, and